Hello and welcome to Bread. We're a newish, spirit-filled, non-denominational church meeting in the Los Feliz area of Los Angeles, or we hope to be again sometime soon. Everything we do as a church is, as with most of the rest of life, currently happening online. Our current teaching series is on prayer, and we're basing the talk each week on one line of the Lord's Prayer in Matthew. Prayer is a somewhat basic tenet of a relationship with the divine, isn't it? But in that a lot of us are aware of our own needs and limitations in whole new ways right now, not to mention the needs of our city, our nation and our world, we thought this might be a good time to look in depth at what Jesus meant when he said, this is how you should pray. We hope you enjoy it. Well, here we are. The fifth week in our series on the Lord's Prayer and the third week on a request. And who doesn't want to talk about the existence of evil this morning? The rest of the prayer is great, isn't it? We start by reminding ourselves who God is. Father, this is possessive, relational, close and caring. Holy is your name, your kingdom, which is so otherworldly to our experience, so perfect, so loving. Come your will, your goodness, your love be done. Be more of it. We need more of it on earth like it is with you. This is how we're supposed to start praying. And then we get to two perfectly reasonable requests for provision, our daily bread, the sustenance we need, and forgiveness. Forgiveness, not just for me, for us. Help us forgive each other. And I do just want to stop and note again the ourness, the usness of this prayer in all of it. We, of course, can pray it by ourselves. We, it is, as we know, the best prayer. But throughout it, it says our, us, our, us. Not once me or my. We are supposed to pray this prayer together. We are supposed to do this together. There is no getting away from it. Online church is not how we're supposed to do church. Online life together is not good enough. It sucks right now because it's not how it's supposed to be and it will not be like this forever. But let's just remember that this sucks because it's not what we're made for. But to return to today, let's just take a moment to consider that the inclusion of this line, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, the fact that it's here in this great prayer guidebook of the Lord's Prayer, this, this is how you should pray prayer, implies engagement in prayer about these forces is something we are supposed to do. So let's start by agreeing what we are and what we are not talking about with regards to praying, lead us not, and therefore who is doing the tempting and therefore, wait, hasn't evil already been conquered? But also, just feel free in this moment to join me in a giant yuck. Because given the state of it all right now, I fully sympathise No one wants a discourse on evil today, but I promise you it's going somewhere good and actually quite incredible and powerful in fact, so just try to bear with me. Lead us not into temptation. The translation of this line is in fact quite misleading, if you'll pardon my pun. I'm not for once making a particularly contentious claim here about translations. Pope Francis, in fact, took this as far as the General Assembly of the Episcopal Conference of Italy last year to approve a change to the Lord's Prayer. It is not a good translation, he said, because it speaks of a God who induces temptation. So, the new liturgical book for the Roman Catholic Mass as of 2019 includes instead the line, do not let us fall into temptation. 
Pope Francis cares very much what a hurting world believes about who God is, and we need to too. He has no hand in evil. James makes this clear without any ambiguity, and he says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. So why pray this then? Because, of course, we all do fall into temptation. The New Testament, as well as the full and complete experience of any Christian you've ever known or heard of, makes it abundantly clear that our human propensity to mess things up doesn't end when we say yes to Jesus. We still mess up. However, looking at the word in the Greek, this is not so much about the temptations as we may think of them, that proverbial piece of chocolate cake in the fridge, lustful temptations, that unshakable creeping thought that you really, really do need that unjustifiably expensive pair of kicks. I'm too old and too British to say the word kicks, aren't I? I'm not talking about the ways in which we are tempted not to do the thing that we know is good for us, are lean towards the naughtiness, the gruelling reminders that we're human in the fallen sense. The word for temptation here is pyrismos. It is different. It is translated more as the testing, implying something specific, the ultimate test, if you will. And in order to understand what the ultimate test is, is about, we're going to need to look at the two times that Matthew talks about Pierismos, bookending Jesus' ministry, once in Matthew 4 when he's in the wilderness, and once in Gethsemane when he's about to be arrested. So we'll come back to that in a second. But first, evil. As Ed mentioned a few weeks ago when we were looking at Jesus' spirit, uh, supernatural power over darkness, it's not the aspect of our faith that I think most Western Christians deal most readily with. We'd quite like not to really have to think about evil, wouldn't we? Outside of Halloween, of course, because then it's all fun and candy themed and for the kids. Funny, old, spooky, cuddly evil. This um, isn't, of course, true of many places around the world. Christians in animistic cultures across Africa, Latin America and Asia have little trouble engaging with the idea of forces of spiritual darkness because it's just part of their worldview. But for us, mainly yuck. You may well have heard this quote from C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters before, but he writes of two equal and opposite errors that us humans can fall into when it comes to the powers of evil. The first is disbelief, the bury your head in the sand approach. Don't, uh, don't acknowledge it, just pretend it isn't there. Or if it does, it doesn't matter because human sin is the real issue, but not so much wanting to think about the evil. Or wallow in the evil, the other side. See evil all over the place. Ascribe all worldly problems to evil. A demon under every teacup, the satanic author of every parking ticket. And then N.T. Wright adds a third option to um, Lewis's two, which he calls the self-righteous indignation option. Thank God I'm not evil. Thank God I'm safe from all that. Keep them away though, those evil people. Keep, those, keep our doors closed and our windows barred, lest they infect the children with their evil. Forgetting, of course, everything Jesus said about self-righteousness being, in fact, evil. And I think if you heard last week's talk, we might confuse this idea with the idea of wanting uh, to condemn or tolerate evil. So I just want to be really, really clear. What we're talking about here is a bit different because we're not talking about people. People can be demon-possessed. People can act with incredible evil. But we're not talking about vilifying or disqualifying people. We're talking about praying every day that God would deliver us 
set us free, liberate us, save us from evil that is real and pervasive and powerful out there and within each one of us. It is more than a sum total of all human evil impulses and actions. It is opposed to all that is good in God's creation, opposed to all that is good in human beings, made in God's image, opposed to all that is God. And I think we can at times grasp it, that there is such a thing as pure evil. Pictures of burning crosses on lawns, pictures of burnt out rainforests, the reports on sex trafficked children here in our country, in this city. Los Angeles has been identified as a major hub. Predators preying on children who have mostly already been neglected and forgotten in our foster systems. We can grasp that evil exists. I visited the Holocaust Museum in Kigali a few years after the Rwanda genocide had ended. Row upon row upon row of the skulls of Tutsi men, women and children. Almost a million people murdered by the machetes of their former Hutu neighbours in just a hundred days. It was division that form, was formed out of and exploited by white European interests for the, in their land just for the sake of clarity. We are not talking about something that only another kind of people do. But the very idea that something could overtake a whole nation and inflict that kind of widespread horror by no means for the first or last time in human history, I think we can stretch our minds to a belief that evil exists. I think we can go there on the idea that evil is a real force. And so if it's real, let's agree as intellectually sound, nuanced, rounded, faith-filled 21st century Christians that we probably need to develop an intellectually sound, nuanced, faith-filled understanding of what evil is and what it isn't. In fact, the Bible is pretty clear that there is not only evil, a pervasive force, cosmic powers of present darkness and spiritual forces in heavenly places, in Paul's words, but also an evil one. The Genesis serpent, Job's accuser, the battling foe of Daniel's angels, a prowling lion roaring for its prey, is uh, Peter's words. Jesus had quite a lot to say about evil. But before we move on to that, given that it's spooky season, I did want to say one tiny thing about the genre of horror. I think that the, in, the urge to enjoy an escapist thrill is as understandable in these times as any. I don't think that seeking a thrill from our relaxation moments is a problem in and of itself, all things balanced. But here's the thing with horror. And I say this seeking to imply no righteous indignation, either as a pastor with unsolicited advice for you or as a self-confessed massive scaredy cat, you couldn't pay me to watch a horror movie. But I would say that we might do well to check our interest in the glorification of evil in our movie viewing habits. I'm sure that some films depicting darkness can in fact shed important light on the nature of goodness and light. I think there's massive precedent from, for this from talking to Pretty to Potter. We just want to be careful what images we're filling our minds with. Horror really isn't good for our minds and spirits in part because of the screw tape principle. On the one hand, it can numb us to the idea of darkness by desensitizing our eyes to its reality and destruction. And on the other hand, it just fills our minds with darkness. We are in the business of following the spirit 
and keeping our minds clean for him is quite important when it comes to discerning where his voice, his light are leading us. Good then, back to temptation or the ultimate testing as we now know we're talking about. And two times in Matthew that Jesus faces this to be read by Tara. The first is from Matthew 4. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, and he had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. They will lift you up into their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So this is right at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. He has just been baptised and he's filled with the Spirit. And then all four Gospels agree, he goes into the wilderness for 40 days worth of dedicated time alone with his father, father, girding his resolve and focus before he meets Satan for the Pirismos, the testing. And there's a bit more going on here than we might naturally see. The three temptations given to Jesus are given to demonstrate the newness of this day. Jesus' stark contrast with all who've gone before. 40 years of wilderness wandering of the Israelites given as 40 days of uh, wilderness fasting. But this time, Jesus will not fall prey to the allure of power and riches like all the other leaders and kings of Israel before him. Jesus answers in Moses' Deuteronomy language to hammer this point home, that he knows what God has said and he knows who he is. But there's also a retelling of the full scene from Genesis 3 in the devil's taunts, the you won't die if you jump, you can become like God. The devil is trying to ensnare Jesus the same way the snake got Adam and Eve. Death is the result of Adam's sin and Jesus, known as the second Adam, is here to deal with it. This test that Adam and Eve faced and that Jesus faces here is about, at its very root, the thing that is broken in all of us. It is the desire for power on our own terms. The desire really to be like God, in charge of our own ships, heroes of our own story, leads in our own films. The devil is using a strategy that has worked with kings of Israel and all the men and all the women and all the boys and girls and all the gender non-conforming, everyone else's who have ever walked this planet. It is such a simple, easy strategy. You deserve more than God is offering you. Don't trust him. Take care of yourself. Do things your way. Why should you serve him? Others should be serving you. It makes total sense. You can be like God, hoping to help us forget that he has made us like him, his image bearers, his heirs, his royal priesthood. Lead us not into temptation, Pyrrhus Moss, not to argue with Pope Francis, 
but I think could actually be rephrased as, help me today to remember that you are God, not me. Satan wants to tempt us away from that truth the same way that he did Jesus. But let's notice also here that the Spirit is using every evil intention to strengthen Jesus for God's plan. And he will do that for us too. So let's skip forward to Jesus' dreaded night before where he's gone with Peter and two of the other disciples into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Thank you, Tara. This scene serves as the most gut-wrenchingly clear reminder that Jesus was a real human with real feelings all the way through his earthly life. He wants his disciples to be near him, not to pray with him, but just to be there while he lays his life before his father in utter honesty and trust, with pain and trust. He calls out in tender intimacy, my father, please can there be another way? For Jesus, temptation, the ultimate test, has always been the question, is there another way? It's why the devil tried what he tried in the wilderness, and it's why, in case you've ever wondered, Jesus seems so uncharacteristically harsh with Peter a couple of chapters before this, when he says, get behind me, Satan. Because Peter is, in that moment, accidentally tempting him to rethink his road to Calvary, just like the devil did. And here, this is the testing again, the most severe of his life. He's always known the cross is where he's headed, and yet even Jesus perfect, blameless Jesus pleads for another way. In dread of pain and death, pain and death that would in fact be a shadow on what was to follow in the unthinkable whirlpool of evil that would engulf him in the horror of separation from God when he died. Jesus knows he's got to go there alone and unaided so that the rest of the world can go free. And so, and this is vitally important to what we're talking about, this is where we can remember that this is where we're different, this is how we're different. Because Jesus did what he came to do, it is finished. We live somewhere else now, where death has been conquered, the light has come in every instance of evil that we will ever face. We face knowing that nothing can separate us from his love. And this is where nuance and maturity comes in. Because we can cling to a faith that says, if you love me, you'll prevent anything bad from ever happening to me. And it's not that terrible a prayer to pray. It's not that different, not that far away from deliver us from evil. It's not terrible, but it's not a Jesus prayer. It's not a prayer that's engaged with the reality of where we live. 
Jesus teaches us that even though we live in a world where pain and suffering and evil exists, we have a Father in heaven who is good and who we can trust enough to say, you are God, you are good, and I will trust you. Not my will, but yours. It's the hardest prayer we will ever pray. We might not have all the satisfactory answers to the problem of suffering with our exquisite reason, because those arguments don't unfortunately really exist. But you know what? Suffering doesn't really need reason, not really. Even if there is a satisfactory answer to the problem of suffering, it wouldn't end suffering. What suffering really needs is love and a knowledge that in the end, good wins. And in the meantime, it requires unwavering knowledge that God is not unmoved by our pain. It needs to know that God the Son sits in Gethsemane and shows us how to feel about this when he sweats blood on our behalf. And it's this that our world is crying out for. Deliver us from evil is a prayer that our world needs us to be praying against an enemy who comes for all that is good, knowing that God hears us, is victorious, who is of us is not aware of how badly the world needs this now. Deliver us from evil, Lord, deliver us from evil. When we don't know what else to pray, we do know how to pray that. I want to now tell you about my friend Catherine. Some of you may remember her from um, our days in Culver City. Last year, this fit, healthy, active, public school teaching 27-year-old in the prime of her life was diagnosed with thyroid cancer. She and her Christian family and many of us began to pray passionately and with faith for God to heal her, for this to be dealt with swiftly and with minimal disruption to her life. She wrote to me about this all um, earlier this week. Soon after my initial diagnosis, my doctors realised it had spread to my lymph nodes, meaning it had spread throughout my body, which meant my prognosis changed from curable to manageable, which means despite surgeries and treatments, it is most likely never going to completely go away. And that changed everything for me. I felt like all the prayers I had prayed and all the prayers of all the people praying for me hadn't worked. God had disappointed me. I prayed through the Lord's Prayer every day for almost six months. I didn't have any other words. I didn't feel like it would miraculously go away, even though I believed it could. And as I sank deeper into the Lord's Prayer, my prayers for myself started to change. They went from take the cancer away to comfort me, draw me close. From take these side effects away to you promised me the fruits of the Spirit, help me find peace. And now from let my numbers be lower than one forever to be near to me, help me see your face, help me to become more like you. Of course, God's will, she goes on, is not for me to have cancer. Cancer is not from him. But what is his best good? That we would see his character here on earth, that we would bring his kingdom a little closer to each person we encounter. That we would know and seek after him and be more like him because he is good. He can even use cancer for his good if I let him. Despite all the pain and heartbreak, 
I have not been separated from his goodness. So I'm living in the tension of all the evils of the world, cancer included, and the beautiful reality of the goodness of God. Quite extraordinary courage in faith, I'm sure you'll agree. And here is the crux of all of it. We have no guarantees of health or wealth or prosperity that the raging fires of this world, figuratively or literally right now, will not touch us. But we have guarantees that we will not ever be separated from God's love and his goodness. This is the promise. And it is this goodness that is our fuel to face it all. This knowledge of his goodness, the fuel of perfect love, of peace that surpasses all understanding, not in denial of the pain, but fueled to withstand it, knowing that God uses broken things and rebuilds them stronger, better, more like they were meant to be, more in his image, more made for somewhere else. We cannot trust his goodness if we think he is responsible for the pain. It is as simple as that. He does not work in mysterious ways. He works in good ways, always to redeem, always to bring goodness. Not my will, but yours. Help me, let you be God, not me. These are impossible prayers to pray if we don't know that he is good. And I think what the Spirit wants to do this morning for many of us is just simply tell us, remind us and help us experience that he is good. To meet us, to heal the desperate pain caused by misunderstanding the nature of God when it comes to his plans and when it comes to the things that we experience of the, in this life, the evil that we experience in this life. It is not from him and he does not make it happen and he is always good. I do think the, the Spirit wants to heal some of this stuff this morning. I do think he wants to help us experience the sense of goodness as it, as it meets our need to know that plans, the plans that he has for us are good. Our needs to know that we're not stuck where we are. And I also think that there are a few of us who are really, really struggling to pray the prayer, not my will, but yours. It's a really hard one to pray, particularly if you sense that God is leading you or calling you somewhere you don't want to go. But as the music starts to play now, just pray with me if you feel open and we'll invite the spirit to come. As always, this is his work to do. Come Holy Spirit. Will you come? Will you fill the rooms where we sit alone in our houses? Will you fill the rooms and will you fill each one of us watching or listening now from our head to our feet with rivers of your life, of your love, of this living water that makes all things new. Lord, where this fear that you're not good, this 
concern that you can't be trusted, where it goes deep for so many of us that we just don't quite know if we're safe to trust you. Holy Spirit, would you flow deep down to those roots, particularly for those of us struggling with real stress and anxiety about the future. Would you meet us now? We know that your perfect love casts out fear, but would you fill us with that love now? More of it. As we worship now. Amen. You give life. You are love. You bring light to the darkness. You give hope. You restore every heart that is broken. Great are you.